As the stimulus passes, large banks like Wells Fargo come out and say that they can't start processing the direct deposits until Wednesday. And, as usual, people start to get very, very angry about this idea because they can't wait for anything. In other news, Biden is planning the first major tax hike in almost 30 years. So we'll talk about what that means and kind of give you a little bit of an, ha, I told you so. Anthony Fauci wants Trump's help trying to get people to go out and take their shots, and the West Coast erupts in protests once again. I'm Jay Edgar, and this is Contemporary. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to Contemporary. My name is Jay Edgar. We've got a bunch of stuff to get to today. It's been a really, really weird weekend. Hey, you guys remember when the people took the time off on the weekend and didn't do a whole bunch of stupid shit? It used to be a struggle for me to fill Contemporary in the morning. On a Monday morning. Because they hadn't done anything. They all left D.C. and they all went back to their home districts and tried to cop for donations and everything. And now it seems like they try to cram everything in on the weekends here. There are 34 tabs sitting up here full of news that we've got to get to today. Just from what happened from the time that we turned the camera off on Friday to now when we're turning it back on. And there's a bunch of stuff that I didn't go over. I didn't touch any of the Tucker stuff or anything like that. Just the stuff that I felt that would be notable given current events right now. So we're going to power through it. We'll get done because it's there. It's ready to go. And we got to go talk about it here. But before we get started into anything else, head on over and check out my friends over at the freedomscoopmediagroup.com. Be a major announcement coming up on the Red and Edge show tonight. So hopefully you guys come by and see what the major announcement is. But I will tell you a little bit of a teaser. It does involve the website and when we do plan to get it relaunched back up. But before we get it launched, head on over, check out my friends, The Generational Gap, The Daily Ignoramus, The Freckles and Brit Show, The R-Rated Conservative, and The Breakdown with Birkenhoff. Get ready because we're going to premiere the new website with headshots, a lot of marketing, ready to go. So head on over there. And while you're there, bookmark it so you can be prepared to pick up some of our swag and help us support great creators. Looking into the Dow, up 0.9% on Friday, closing at 32,778.64. I'm sure a lot of retail people are looking at this saying, well, we're going to get a whole bunch of money here. And I mean, I would invest in retail. If I thought it had a long-term strategy, I think it's going to be fairly short-term on this because the 1400 bucks are going to come in. People are going to go, ooh, ah, it'll be like a bottle rocket, and then it'll be over. But as I've always said, we will watch this forward, see what the investors think this is going to do long-term, and analyze it day-to-day. -day. Looking in at the Bitcoin, which is up to 55305 U.S. dollars and 20 U.S. cents, slightly down over Friday, but still holding up further than I thought it was going to be yet at this point. Looking in at the gas, there is one BP station in Cambridge, Wisconsin, just south of Madison, that dropped itself down to 232. I'm not sure how they did that. Usually Cambridge is more expensive than Madison, having once lived in the area and sometimes gone and got gas in Cambridge. I remember that for a fact. Uh, statistically, Cambridge was usually a little bit higher than what it was in Madison, but 
If you look around Madison, everybody else has jumped up to the 249 mark, that 245 that we saw last week, that held at the Costco forever is uh, no longer a thing. So now we're at 249 everywhere, and the rest of the stations are starting to go up to. I see some 253s, some 255s, so it's starting to go up. Including one that held out at 245 forever. That one's up 10 cents since last week. So watch your gas prices, see what goes there. All right, looking in at IBD for the morning. Dow Jones Futures. Market rally expands, Bitcoin falls on crypto ban fears, NXP semi leads four stocks set to jump. From Ed Carson, Dow Jones futures rose modestly Monday along with S&P 500 futures and NASDAQ futures. Bitcoin pulled back after topping $61,000 on Saturday for the first time ever. I missed that one apparently. The stock market remains split, but the rally is broadening out significantly with more and more stocks from a variety of sectors breaking out. The one notable exception is NASDAQ and growth stocks, but even they had a tentatively positive week. Delta Airlines, Las Vegas Sands, and Marriott International are among several travel stocks, setting up bullishly in similar patterns with United Airlines already clearing a fresh buy point. Eli Lilly released more details on Saturday from a Phase 2 study showing its drug Donanembab I don't know what that word is supposed to be. Slowed cognitive decline in early Alzheimer's patients by 32% over 18 months. That headline figure was released in January, sending LLY stock so uh, soaring. The more complete data were released at a conference and published in the New England Journal of Medicine. Certain other secondary goals were mixed. LLY stock tumbled early Monday after soaring on a preliminary study result in January. It's been a flat base with 218.10 buy point, finding support at its 21-day exponential moving average. Volkswagen! Volkswagen will hold a battery-focused Power Day event before U.S. markets open on Monday, akin to Tesla's Battery Day last year. VW may announce a switch from using pouch-type batteries to prismatic batteries, which could also affect its mix of suppliers. I don't know what a prismatic battery is. I might have to look into that. Because, all in all, even though I read the news every day, I'm still a car guy, and the way car technology goes still interests me. VW earnings are due Tuesday, while the ID4 crossover launches in China and the U.S. later this month. VW is leading the charge of traditional automakers rushing into electric vehicles. All of that could pressure Tesla sales and prices, as well as Tesla stock. VW stock has been soaring in recent months, outpacing fast-rising GM and Ford. The Bitcoin price continues to run, reaching 61788 on Saturday. The cryptocurrency retreated to above uh, 56000 Monday morning. India's government will propose a law banning cryptocurrencies, including trading, mining, and possession. Reuters reported, citing a source. Just a source. Bitcoin's previous peak was just over 58000 on February 21st. Many financial institutions are mainstreaming Bitcoin at least uh, as least. What is that word? Many financial institutions are mainstreaming Bitcoin at as least digital assets. I don't even know what they're trying to say there. While Tesla buying $1.5 billion of Bitcoin is one of several companies investing in the crypto, the $1.9 trillion buying stimulus is seen flooding more money into Bitcoin and financial markets generally.
Finally, NXP Semiconductors, Penn National Gaming, Generac Holdings, and Caesars Entertainment are set to join the S&P 500 before the open on March 22nd. The stocks rose 4-7% early Monday. On the S&P 500 news, NXP stock could offer a buying opportunity as it bounces from its 10-week line while Penn National, Genera, and Caesars don't appear actionable. Generac and GM are on the IBD leaderboard. Generac stock and Tesla are on the IBD 50 list. On the futures, Dow Jones futures rose 0.3% versus fair value. S&P 500 futures climbed 0.1% and NASDAQ 100 futures advanced a fraction. The 10-year Treasury yield was unchanged at 163, uh, 1.63% after edging lower earlier. China's January-February retail sales surged 33.8% uh, versus a year earlier when the country was going through its coronavirus lockdown. Industrial production leapt 35.1%. And remember, overnight action in Dow Futures and elsewhere doesn't necessarily translate into actual trading in the next regular stock market session. So I see a, key, uh, a couple things in this article. First off, earlier on, they pointed out the fact that some stocks were going up majorly and others were going down majorly, which talks about this K-shaped recovery that Biden talked about in the last debate for presidency. Where, come on, man, the, the rich are just getting richer and the, and the poor are getting poorer. And we, I mean, we see this with the markets. We see some of them booming out and blowing out massively and others are just wah, 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 wah. And China is coming in, and they're, they're starting to kick our ass as a superpower, too. So that's something to definitely watch as we move forward and see what's going to start happening. Coming up in later markets, so definitely watch for that. Definitely see what's coming on with that. And let's move on. From CNBC. Dow looks to, set, uh, to add to record at Monday's market open. Dow futures climb 80 points. From Maggie Fitzgerald. U.S. stock futures rose Monday, indicating Dow Jones Industrial Average and S&P 500 will add to record highs at the open. Dow futures came, uh, climbed 78 points, or 0.2%. S&P 500 futures were flat. NASDAQ 100 futures declined. Stocks that will benefit most from a swift economic comeback from the pandemic led the gains in pre-market trading. American Airlines and United Airlines, which are both airlines, obviously, so they're both industrial. We're both up 2% at the pre-market trading. That's what's holding the Dow up and everybody else falling down. Boeing, Gap, and various energy stocks were also higher. The U.S. 10-year Treasury hit its highest level in more than a year on Friday. The benchmark Treasury rate reached 1.642%, its highest level since February of 2020. You know, right before they started shutting everything down. The 10-year Treasury yield was trading flat to slightly lower early Monday. Investors will have to continually grapple with the anxiety about economics overheating and the Fed tightening that has gripped the markets in recent weeks, wrote David Costin, Goldman's chief U.S. Uh, equity strategist, in a note. We believe that equity valuations should be able to digest 10-year yields of roughly 2% without much difficulty. Stocks rose last week with the Dow Jones Industrial Average rising 4% and the S&P 500 gaining 2.6%. The S&P and the Dow both closed at record highs on Friday. The Nasdaq Composite advanced 3% last week despite a sell-off on Friday spurred by the rising interest rates. The jump in bond yields has challenged growth stocks in recent weeks and sent investors into cyclical pockets of the market. 
The Nasdaq is up less than 1% on this month, while the Dow and S&P are up 6% and 3.5% respectively. So a lot of things to process here, a lot of things to look at as we go into the markets coming in today. It's going to be a mixed bag. And I'm once again, I'm looking at the industrials and just thinking this is going to fall on its face. Just from what I'm seeing on everything I've seen, because I read this every morning. And all I see is something that's on a very volatile bubble that nobody knows what's going to happen from. So definitely something to watch, but we will continue to watch this and see what happens here. Let's look at the big news of the day, starting from the hill. And there's really no pattern across any of this. Like we see a couple stories from a big story and then a couple smaller stories at the end. No, this is just a smattering of news because they try to shove everything in from this weekend. From the Hill, Wells Fargo and Chase not processing stimulus payments until Wednesday, sparking criticism. From Joseph Choi, banking agents, Wells Fargo and Chase said they will not process recently issued $1,400 stimulus payments until Wednesday, causing outcry from their customers. HuffPo noted that the bank said in individual statements last week that they will not be processing and releasing the payments until March 17th. We expect most of the electronic payments will be available as soon as Wednesday, March 17th, 2021, Chase said on its website. Which means that everybody can finally get their money from their big bank and go and blow it all away in a bunch of whiskey and green beer fueled fury. Wells Fargo will process all the direct deposits according to the effective date provided by the U.S. Treasury, Wells Fargo said. The announcement sparked criticism on Twitter because people are about to get free shit and they're pissed because it's not hitting their hands immediately like it did when their divorced mom and dad were fighting. <clears throat> Professor Zenka says, so Wells Fargo will be holding government stimulus checks for two days before allowing people to ca uh, access the funds. This lets Wells Fargo make the interest off people's cash. 67% of Wells' political donations went to two Dems in 2020, including Dem packs like Ameripac. Nice. Keith Boykin says, it's your money. Stimulus checks will come directly from the U.S. Treasury. So why are Chase and Wells Fargo holding on to your money until March 17th? HuffPo added that other banking in uh, institutions such as, eh, such as Chime have made the payments immediately available to their customers. Chimes claim to have already provided around $600 million worth of stimulus payments. We've already made $600 million available to 250,000 members. These payments will be available at traditional banks on 317, but Chime members already have access and more is on its way, Chime wrote on Twitter. That's what you want to see from your bank. Stimulert! Oh, go away. I didn't want to open that tweet. Stimulus payments were first sent out this weekend, shortly after the $1.9 trillion stimulus bill was passed along party lines. Snip, snip, snip. That's all I have to say about it. We know the importance of the stimulus funds to our customers, and we are providing the payments to our customers as soon as possible on the date the funds are available based on IRS direction. Wells Fargo said in a statement provided to The Hill. Wells Fargo is not holding the funds 
March 17th is the official payment date provided by the IRS when the funds are available, and the customers who are uh, eligible to receive the direct payments of their stimulus payment may expect it as soon as the morning of March 17th. So, of course, people are pissed. But, once again, we're out on St. Patrick's Day, so... Get that Jameson out. Go to your local tavern with a green hat on that's usually probably made out of paper. And enjoy, because, hey, we're all vaccinated now, and we can open the, all that stupid bullshit. We couldn't do it for the last year, but we can open it now. So, that's what we're going to see off of this one here. Let's see what CBS News has to say. Talking a little bit about the border crisis here. They never saw the sun, lawyers describe overcrowded conditions for children in Border Patrol custody. From Camilo Montoya Galvez. A staggering number of migrant children detained at a Border Patrol facility in South Texas face overcrowded conditions, with some held as long as seven days. Lawyers who interviewed them on Thursday told CBS News. Neha Desai, a lawyer representing migrant youth in U.S. government custody, said she interviewed children who said they were hungry, as well as minors, who only showered once in seven days. Some of the boys said the conditions were so overcrowded that they had to take turns sleeping on the floor. Desai added, criticizing interviews with nearly a dozen unaccompanied migrant children held at the Customs and Border Protection Holding Facility in Donna, Texas. But don't worry, man. It's, it's, only, that, it's, it's only that goddamn Trump. He's the only one that kept the kids in the cages. All right? I, I, I've got a plan to make this work effectively. On March 2nd, the Donna Complex was holding more than 1,800 people, 729% of its pandemic-era capacity, which is designed for 250 migrants, according to an internal CBP document interviewed by CBS News. Most of the miners said they'd only showered once while in U.S. custody, even though they'd been held for more than five days, according to Desai. Some said they had showered twice. They all said they wanted to shower more and told that they couldn't, Desai said. As lawyers representing migrant children in the federal court case over the landmark Flores Settlement Agreement, Desai and her colleagues at the National Center for Youth Law are entitled to interview minors in U.S. Uh, immigration custody. Desai said she and one of her colleagues were only able to interview some of the hundreds of migrant children detained at the Donna facility, a large tent complex designed to detain unaccompanied minors and families with children for short periods of time. The lawyer said CBP denied them a tour of the facility. Gee, I wonder why. Is it possible that they don't want the kids in cages narrative to try and take off? In spite of the fact that it's doing so, and 729%, eight times the number of people that the facility was intended to house in pandemic time, which still means it's probably four or five times. Well, let's say three to five times, and we'll be generous about it. Which means it's probably holding three to five times the number of people it was designed to hold in the first place. And nobody's outraged about this. Come on, man. We don't have a crisis. So, why? Wow, I can't believe it. Well, I can believe this because we get told right off the bat that, come on, man. I'm, I'm going to let everybody in this country. We're going to figure it out once you're here. Just, just get here. And then they got here and realized that uh, they were overflowing. There are record numbers of migrants trying to do this right now.
Say what you will about Trump's immigration policy, but there weren't a whole, well, there were still a whole lot of people coming, but they were coming in lower numbers than what they're coming for now. So definitely be watching this as we go. From the New York Post, Nancy Pelosi reappoints Eric Swalwell to Intel Committee despite honeypot scandal. I did not copy the tweet. I should have copied the tweet because I saw one person. Actually, that might still be in the GenGap server. Give me just a second here. But we might actually still be able to see this. I saw the world's worst take on this. I did land that in the GenGap server. Let me get this up here too. Because, my God, the, the, the world's worst take. All right, let me get this up here and organize and we'll get the screen back on. We'll read this afterwards. All right, let's get that back up and let's on to this. All right, going back to the New York Post. Pelosi reappoints Eric Swalwell to Intel Committee despite honeypot scandal from Stephen Nelson. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi on Friday confirmed that she's keeping Representative Eric Swalwell on the House Intelligence Committee despite questions swirling about his relationship with Chinese spy Fang Fang, who seduced U.S. politicians as part of her work. Pelosi previously reappointed the fellow California Democrat to the House Homeland Security Committee over Republican objections. The American people elected a Democrat House majority that would be relentless in our work to promote their security, both by defending their economic security at home and our national security abroad, Pelosi said in a statement. On the Intelligence Committee, these members will be effective forces in keeping the American people safe as we confront our nation's adversaries, adapt to new threats, and work with our allies. Swalwell received an FBI defensive briefing in 2015 on Fang, who is believed to have returned to China to avoid apprehension after fundraising for Swalwell and placing an intern in his office. So he is back on the Intel Committee. Let's uh, go ahead and read this here from The Hill. GOP leader to try and force Swalwell off the panel from Julie Grace Brufke and Rebecca Biesch. House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy said he's planning to introduce a resolution to remove Representative Eric Swalwell from the House Intelligence Committee, arguing that he's a national security threat due to his former ties with an alleged Chinese spy. Pelosi just reappointed Eric Swalwell to the Intelligence Committee based on the briefing she and I received together. Swalwell should not be on the panel in charge of guarding our nation's secrets. Next week, I will offer a resolution to remove him from the Intel Committee. He tweeted on Friday which the precedent is set, by the way. Keep that in mind because the Democrats all got together and decided that, hey, we can go remove Marjorie Taylor Greene because we don't like what she said before she was a, before she was a representative. So this actually might hold a little bit of water here. Although I'm sure she'll get her 0.1% majority in the House to come out and Stand in lockstep and say, no, Swalwell will be on the committee. 
GOP lawmakers have repeatedly taken aim at Swalwell due to his previous relationship with Christine Fang, who, according to a report in Axios, helped fundraise for Swalwell during his 2014 re-election campaign and placed an intern inside his office before leaving the country in 2015 amid a federal investigation into her actions. Fang also allegedly targeted a number of other high-profile Democrats in California. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi previously said she didn't have any concern about Swalwell's ability to serve on the Intelligence Committee. So we'll be watching these fireworks here. But world's worst take, I found this on Twitter on Tuesday while I was looking into this here. Grant Stern actually said this. I guess Republicans want to cancel Rep Swalwell for cooperating with the FBI to neutralize a spy. Something they've never, ever done. So Swalwell's the hero now. Because it wasn't that he was banging a Chinese spy. It was that he was he, he was a sting operator. This reminds me of... Uh, you remember in Back to the Future 2 when Flea from the Red Hot Chili Peppers convinced Marty to uh, scan his car, do something illegal for the company, and then he got caught and he... Marty comes out and says, Come on, no, it was a sting operation. No, I, I was just trying to get him caught. That's what this reeks of right now. This is desperation to try and say, All Democrats good and all Republicans are bad. Take the L. Let him face down his constituents the next time through. And move on with your fucking day. Seriously. Alright, let's keep going here. From The Blaze, I figure you guys will enjoy this one. This is the first time on Contemporary we've talked about the royal family. Report, Meghan Markle is eyeing presidential campaign talking to top Democrats. As early as 2024, from Chris Enloe. Just one week after Meghan Markle and Prince Harry went public with steamy allegations against the British royal family, new reports suggest that Markle could use notoriety from her interview with Oprah Winfrey to springboard a presidential campaign. There you go. The Daily Mail reported Sunday that a senior figure in the Labor Party, whom the paper described as a veteran of Tony Blair's Downing Street administration with strong links to Washington, said Markle is networking with top Democrats with the aim of building a future presidential campaign and fundraising apparatus. The Blairite internationalist and Democratic Party networks are buzzing with talks about Meghan's political ambitions and potential backers, the source said. A source further explained that Markle is looking to run as early as 2024, citing the fact that President Joe Biden will be 82 years old, according to the Daily Mail. However, Markle would have to battle Democrat Party stars like Vice President Kamala Harris, who nobody liked and couldn't crack 1% as a presidential nominee. If she wants a legitimate shot at the White House, Interestingly, if Markle managed to ascend to the White House in 2024, she would become the first woman to become president. Hillary Clinton was the first presidential nominee of a major political party in 2016, but she lost to Donald Trump. After Markle and Prince Harry urged Americans to reject hate speech and participate in the 2020 election, Vanity Fair reported last year that Markle has political ambitions that include the White House. One of the reasons that she was so keen not to give up her American citizenship was so that she had the option to go into politics. I think if Meghan and Harry ever give up their titles, she would seriously consider running for president, a close friend of Markle said. 
However, at the time, other sources close to Markle denied the rumors. While there's no denying she's interested and engaged in politics as a topic, she harbors no ambition to enter the career in politics herself. A well-placed source told Vanity Fair. There you go. She's marrying a prince, and now she wants to be the president. We're actually going to be talking a little bit more about that story tonight, by the way, on the Red Net Show, because, I don't know. I feel, especially with this bombshell, it's worth talking about. And Elaine wanted to talk about it a little bit, and uh, I made a deal with her, and I want to talk about this stupid-ass Milo story, where now he's suddenly not gay. So we'll be talking about that later on tonight. Looking forward to that. But, uh, yeah, I do believe that a member of the royal family... Becoming the first gentleman, not only that, but his wife being the first president, or not the first president, but president, that seems like a conflict of interest to me. Does that seem like a conflict of interest to you? Because it seems like one to me. All right, let's keep going. From the New York Post, organization says sharing Oprah interview memes is... You, you read it correct if you're not listening to this back on the audio platform, if you're watching this on a video platform... You're reading that collect, uh, correctly. It's digital blackface. There it is. Non-black people should not spread Oprah Winfrey memes from the Prince Harry and Meghan Markle interview because that's supporting digital blackface. A nonprofit organization is complaining. Which translates to, this shit's just too goddamn funny, so we need to put a stop to this here. The Slow Factory Foundation, which is dedicated to social and environmental justice, issued the warning on its Instagram page Tuesday saying digital blackface is an online phenomenon where white and non-black people share images of black people to express emotion. Oprah Winfrey's variety of facial uh, reactions during the interview have resulted in a slew of viral memes. While seemingly harmless, the problem with digital blackface is that it often reinforces negative stereotypes about black folks, such as they're aggressive, loud, sassy, and simply here for your consumption and entertainment. The post reads, talking about a woman who has made an entire career of being on TV for consumption and entertainment. The organization added, performing blackness, be it IRL or online, is not an acceptable form of expressing reaction or dissatisfaction, especially not in the exchange for likes and retweets. Which Oprah are you in the department meeting? Midget and S8, if you guys are watching this and listening to this right now, I hope you flood the meme competition with Oprah memes. Just for that. Since the Meghan and Harry interview on Oprah, we've been seeing a lot of digital blackface infractions, with a few of Oprah's reaction gifs and images gone viral. But that doesn't mean you should be using them. The Slow Factory continued. One popular Oprah meme shows the media mogul with a shocked expression on her face after Marco revealed to her that someone in the royal family raised concerns about baby Archie's skin color once he was born. Some people on social media praised the organization for raising awareness of digital blackface. Which, once again, tells me that this shit was getting too funny and too out of control and the internet couldn't contain it anymore. Digital blackface. Yes, I'm serious. 
So that's what we're seeing from that here. Let's keep going. I've got one from CNN. No, I don't because that one's just a video. Let's see how long the video is. Maybe we'll still watch it. But uh, Trump's last defense secretary blames Trump for the Capitol riot. And it's thinking. In a new interview, the former acting secretary of defense is blaming, uh, says blame for the January 6th Capitol riot is on the former president of the United States, Donald Trump. This is really the first time that we've heard from Chris Miller since the insurrection. He was the acting defense secretary at the time, the man not only in charge of America's military, but also the man who had final approval on sending in the National Guard to stop the violence on that day, to send in reinforcements. Well, here he is speaking to Vice. Do you think the president was responsible for what happened on the 6th? I don't know, but it seems cause and effect, yeah. The question is, would anybody have marched on the Capitol and overrun the Capitol without the president's speech? I think it's pretty much definitive that wouldn't have happened. So, uh, yes. Joining me right now is the former deputy FBI director, Andy McCabe. So, Andy, what did you think when you heard Miller... All right, so that's what Miller had to say about that. I don't really care what Andy McCabe had to say, but uh, yeah, this whole thing to me just reeks of uh, CYA. Miller's on the hook for something, and now he's coming out and trying to say, no, no, it was the orange man. It was the evil orange man. So nobody in Washington, D.C. has any honor anyway. They can't stand up to what they did. Plus, he probably knows he's going to prison if it comes out that he was the one that held the National Guard back. Knowing full well, and I've, I've said on numerous occasions, I don't like the idea that Washington, D.C. is under lockdown now. And I didn't really like the fact that it was under lockdown for the inauguration. But that doesn't mean for a second that you have to be stupid about things either. Every single time right-wing demonstrators and Trump-supporting demonstrators have gone to Washington, D.C. prior to January 6th. Every single time that somebody with a MAGA hat set foot in Washington, D.C. Antifa and BLM were there to go and start fights, and we saw some of the fights. So if you're going to come back and tell me that you didn't need additional security... For whatever reason, not for the insurrection, just for the fact that Trump supporters and Antifa BLM statistically were set to square off with each other. Now, they didn't. They wound up not squaring off with each other, but statistically, looking at the statistics that were coming in before that day, statistically, the two groups are going to face off. And you didn't think it was important to get extra security? Extra help for the Capitol Police, in for that. You are out of your mind, and you should be in fucking prison, by the way. You fucking should be up, up in prison. Alright, so that's what we have there. I've got a tweet here from Elaine, talking about uh, what happened. Um, sorry, talking about a speech from Thomas Massey here. Uh, Elaine tweets out, many women have been in this situation, many have called. Many have been told they're overreacting, or the police cannot do anything. Because a crime has not been committed yet, some can't call because the person they're afraid of is a cop. Gun control harms women. 
Because Aaron Rupar tweets out, Representative Thomas Massey argues against a gun background check bill by telling a hypothetical story about a victim in an abusive relationship who urgently needs a gun or they won't make it through the night seems like that person should call the police because, of course, they should. Call the police on pre-crime. That seems like a Democrat talking point right there, but let's listen to what uh, Mr. Massey has to say. How many of those 112,000 were prosecuted for that crime of trying to acquire that gun? According to the DOJ, 12. One, two, 12 in a year. Who were the other 100,000? Imagine, just imagine now that you're the victim of an abusive relationship. And after five years, you've summoned the courage and the resources to separate from that relationship. But things have escalated. And now you've decided it's time to acquire the means to protect you and your children. So you go to the gun store and you try to buy a gun. The clerk presses the computer button. It says denied. You ask the clerk, why was it denied? I don't know, this happens sometimes. Maybe you had a similar name to somebody else in the database. You can't buy a gun today, tomorrow, next week, not ever. You've been denied. So you go to a friend, a friend you've known for a long time. Your friend says, I'd like to help you. You say, well, I don't know if I'm going to make it through the night. The friend says, I'd like to help you, but don't you know H.R. 8 passed, and it was signed by the president. I can't spend a year in a cage. Good luck tonight. Now, I'm not going to... To be fair... I'm going to play devil's advocate against Massey, and I actually support Massey's idea because, I mean, what you do between you and your friend should be your own business, but at the very, very highest, it should be a county decision. Because maybe we shouldn't have that much going through Chicago right now, but, you know, at, at the very highest, that should be a county decision. However, if you go to your friend and say, I might not make it through the night, Your friend should be offering the couch or the bed to you. Especially if your friend has the fucking gun. Jesus, really? That seems, uh... <clears throat> that seems like uh, common knowledge. So I, I'll play devil's advocate for that. But in spite of the fact still, yes, this, this whole federal background check thing, especially if you're just going to... If you're going to make it out to private sales, too, that is that is ex exceptionally hard. And yes, gun, Elaine is absolutely right. Gun control harms women. It does. So we'll see what happens with this. I don't see H.R. 8 as even having a chance in hell of passing because we still have the filibuster in place. But I don't know. There are some squishy people over on the Republican side, too. So we will see. All right, let's keep... I also love, by the way, that Aaron Rupar is out here saying, seems like that person should call the police. Aaron Rupar, nine months ago, was saying ACAB. Keep that in mind, too. All right, let's keep going. From the Hill, Biden planning the first major tax hike in almost 30 years. From Joseph Choi. President Biden is reportedly planning the first major hike in federal taxes in almost 30 years to fund the economic program to, uh, set to follow the recently approved $1.9 trillion stimulus package. Told ya! Biden's going to make taxes go up. We told you that Biden was going to make taxes go up. 
Everybody in independent media told you that Biden was going to make taxes go up. And we were consistently told over and over again, it's not going to be unless you make over a million dollars a year. I believe the actual figure was 400000 but still, it was just some ridiculous number that nobody could ever hit. Then, uh, here we go. Unidentified sources told Bloomberg that the increase will reflect the promises Biden made during his 2020 campaign. No, it won't. And even still, if you do start throwing the taxes up against these people, your consumer goods are going to go up. I hope you know that. The planned increase reportedly uh, include raising the corporate tax from 21% to 28%, killing jobs in the process, increasing the income tax rate on people making over $400,000, expanding the estate tax, pairing back tax preferences on pass-through businesses, such as limited liability companies, and setting up a higher capital gains tax rate for individuals making at least a million dollars. Even if you don't make $400,000 a year, all of that's still going to affect you. I hope you know. Furthermore, if you think that given the amount of spending that they have proposed, it's going to stop at $400,000, you are out of your mind. People who make more than $400,000 a year on paper know how to hide money very well in fact it's and like i said any tax on the rich people is a tax on the middle and lower classes because your consumer goods are going to go up to go and pay for the taxes to the company As Bloomberg notes, an independent analysis of the Biden campaign's tax plan uh, conducted by the Tax Policy Center found that it would raise around $2.1 trillion over 10 years. Okay. That covers one massive piece of spending that you inflated the currency with. Tax hikes include, as part of the infrastructure and jobs package, will likely include repealing part of former President Trump's 2017 tax law that benefited corporations and wealthy individuals, the news notes citing sources close to the matter. Biden had said during his campaign that he would repeal Trump's tax cuts on day one of his administration, though he has yet to do so. Democratic lawmakers have expressed some hesitance to support a tax increase. Moderate Senate Democrat Joe Manchin, who has quickly become a key vote in Congress, previously told The Hill that he thought repealing the Trump's tax cuts would be ridiculous. He later backed up his remarks, saying everything's open for discussion. His whole outlook has always been that Americans believe tax policy needs to be fair, and he has viewed all of his policy options through that lens, former Biden economic aide Sarah Bianchi told Bloomberg. That is why the focus is on addressing the unequal treatment between work and wealth. So they're trying to sell this to the progressives as redistribution, but, well, I hope you enjoyed your tax cuts because your paychecks are going down, the taxes are going up in your paychecks, the tax withholding from your paychecks is going up, and your taxes are going up. All right, let's keep going. Come on, there we go. Ron Johnson says he might have been concerned for safety had Capitol riots been BLM and Antifa. 
from Carolyn Kelly. Wisconsin Republican Senator Ron Johnson on Thursday invoked race in explaining his sense of safety during the January 6th Capitol riot, saying that he might have been concerned for his well-being had the protesters been affiliated with Black Lives Matter instead of being a largely white pro-Trump crowd. Even though those thousands of people that were marching to the Capitol were trying to pressure people like me to vote in a way that they wanted me to vote, I knew those people who, that love this country, that truly respect law enforcement, would never do anything to break the law. And so I wasn't concerned, Johnson said during the talk radio show, The Joe Pegg Show. He was discussing his recent comments, downplaying the danger that day, and he has said he never really felt threatened. Now the tables have been turned, Joe. This could get me in trouble. Had the tables been turned and President Trump won the election and those were tens of thousands of Black Lives Matter and Antifa protesters, I might have been a little concerned, Johnson continued. CNN has reached out to Johnson's office for comment. Some conservatives have sought to draw false equivalency between the events of January 6th and the unrest that took place over the summer in the wake of several high-profile police killings of black Americans. Although there were incidents of violence and property destruction last summer, the January riot at the Capitol resulted in five deaths, citation needed please, including a Capitol Police officer and more than 100 other police officers were injured. And honestly, to look at this, to look and see what's going on with this and the fact that, yes, Ron Johnson is coming out and saying that, yes, I would have felt more concerned if it was Antifa and Black Lives Matter. This is the exact same narrative that the left is trying to peddle right now, saying that they felt uniquely disturbed by this and unsafe by this because it was Trump supporters. All of this, and going both ways, all of this right now, is nothing, literally nothing, but partisan politics. That's all that you're seeing. It's just partisanship. It's They're coming out and saying, well, it's, it's because it's the other team that I felt unsafe. Regardless, you saw some things happen here. You saw some things happen in the Capitol. You saw some things happen around the country. And some of this does look like this was egged on by the political machine. So, yeah, I'm sure that if I was Ron Johnson, I would feel un more unsafe if it was people who voted against my party. Especially because he's becoming a lot more high profile at this point. So, that's what we have to say going off of that. Let's keep going. From Real Clear Markets, a division of Real Clear Politics. With politicized lending, Biden aims to revive Operation Choke Point. And this is a little bit interesting, looking at the fact that some of this is being broadcast on alt media. I've got the Trovo going. I've got uh, DLive going, which I think DLive has kind of fallen to the wayside here. But, you know, it is what it is. They started shutting down political uh, donations, let's say. They started shutting down monetization for there. And a lot of people stopped going over there because they had all these lemons and they couldn't give them away. So... I'm a little surprised to see a lot more people today on mainline tech than I do on uh, on the alt tech. But still, we do have to talk a little bit about alt tech and see what's going on there. This is from Benjamin Zyker. <clears throat> 
in one of the last executive actions of the Trump administration, the Office of the Comptroller of the Currency published an important final fair access to financial services rule requiring that large banks and federal savings accounts make lending decisions based upon individualized quantitative risk-based analysis and management of customer risk. Translation, lenders are not to make such decisions on the basis of politically unpopularity among leftists of certain businesses. Obvious examples of which are producers of fossil fuels or firearms, operators of for-profit colleges or private prisons, and payday lenders and perhaps others engaged in entirely legal business activities. Yeah, and that also includes your alt text, like your parlors, your DLives, BitChute, places like that. Under the finalized rule, such politicized lending cri uh, criteria as reputational risk a wholly circular construct devoid of analytical content, were to be excluded as determinants of the allocated capital, this constraint would enhance the productivity of financial capital by both lenders and borrowers by making economic value the central driver of lending decisions and the use of borrowed funds. The strengthened role of economic value would help to preserve the soundness of the banking financial system and more generally would it engender a number of aggregate economic benefits flowing from the strengthening of economic factors and the weakening of political factors in the capital market. As we discussed below, the rule ostensibly aimed at the lending decisions of the financial institutions in reality is designed to constrain the behavior of bureaucrats and politicians pursuing politicized agendas. That is why no one can be surprised that the Biden administration has announced that it has paused the publication of its rule to ensure large banks provide all customers fair access to their services. The rule was to have taken effect on April 1st. Here's the explanation for the pause. Pausing publication of the rule in the Federal Register will allow the next confirmed comptroller of the currency to review the final rule and the public comments on the OCC received as part of an orderly transition. That is an explanation that explains little even as it's highly revealing as the orderly transition rationale could be applied to any rule promulgated during the Trump administration, but not yet published in its final form. It is not difficult to conclude that many high-level members of the Biden administration prefer politicized lending as a short journey down memory lane illustrates, remember, Operation Chokepoint? That was the blatant effort by the Obama administration to exclude several large legal industries from the banking system. This clearly was illegal and unconstitutional, having been based on no law or any other kind of legal authority. It simply reflected the political biases of the senior Obama decision makers. <clears throat> well, yeah, and that uh, there's still an inherent level of risk to lending too. Let's just keep using alt tech as an example for this to lending to alt tech, because as soon as people find out that the bank has lended uh, to Parler, we'll use Parler as the example. As soon as the progressive left find out that the bank has lended to Parler, they'll start a massive Twitter campaign or mainline social media campaign to get all their people to start protesting. And then people get scared. They start pulling their money out of the bank and the bank starts losing money. So there's always going to be an inherent risk when you do business with companies like this or not. But what this Operation Choke Point did was it allowed the banks to do this preemptively because, you know, it was politically unsound to do so. So I'm not surprised at all that Biden is doing this. Well, I'm not surprised at all that the Biden administration is doing this.
he doesn't know which shoe goes on which foot. But his administration keeps putting those leather-bound books in front of him and say, come on, Grandpa, sign here. Sign here. It's time to... Time to sign. Time to time to make a rule. And he signs and he makes a rule. And that is that is what it is. So that's what we have going on there. Let's keep going here. I've got a tweet here from Ayanna Presley. <clears throat> Eviction moratoriums aren't enough. We need rent and mortgage cancellation. So basically socialize the housing market. Congress can and must cancel payments by creating an HUD Gov Fund to stand in the gap between struggling tenants and landlords. I introduced a bill with Ilhan, Minnesota this week to make it happen. Yeah, we all know what their agenda is. They're going to uh, federalize the uh, the lending system. So, watch for that, at least to try and hammer through. And we're going to see a lot of stuff come through here, too. That I mean, the House is going to throw a lot of stuff that's going to be the big ask at this point. Because they know that it doesn't stand a chance at hell. This was point because I put this tweet in the Discord server, so I could remember to come back to it. I found it while I was at work, and so I could remember to go and add it to the list for today. And our friend Brain Damage over in the Discord server likes to go and comment on all the news stories coming up here, and he pointed out correctly that yes, it's it's easy to go back and virtue signal when your legislation doesn't stand a snowball's chance in hell. I don't think this could pass even with a filibuster-proof majority in the Senate right now because there are a lot of people in the House and Senate that stand to lose a lot of money off of their investors and kickbacks that they're getting from real estate. Yes, it's a progressive dream to go and socialize the housing market, but in reality, it doesn't stand a chance. But it must be nice to virtue signal. We've got a few people watching here, so I want to make another quick announcement here, talking to you guys. Just a bit about something that happened here, good news. So I want to point out that the next time you guys see Harvey McLeod in the chat, make sure that you guys give her a congratulations. And she said I was allowed to make the announcement to you guys, because she's been such a friend of the show, and she's been on as numerous times, helped me out in a pinch, that uh, Mr. McLeod and Harvey McLeod are expecting a little McLeod coming up here. In about seven months. So next time you guys see her, give her a nice pat on the back. All right, from the Daily Wire. <clears throat> Excuse me. Fauci now wants Trump's help after taking repeated shots at the former president following the election. From Ryan Saavedra. Dr. Anthony Fauci director of the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases, now wants former President Donald Trump's help after he has repeatedly taken shots at the former president in the months since the election. Fauci made the remarks during an interview on Sunday with Fox News host Chris Wallace after Wallace played clips of four former presidents encouraging people to get vaccinated. Now... Conspicuous by his absence in the public service announcement was President Trump, Wallace said. And here's why that was important. According to a recent poll, 49% of Republicans said they don't intend to get the vaccine. Doctor, how much of a difference will it make if President Trump, who was largely responsible for the success of Operation Warp Speed, how much of a difference will it make if President Trump leads a campaign for the people who are most devoted to him to actually go out and get the vaccine, Wallace asked. 
Fauci responded by saying that Trump led a campaign for his followers to get the vaccinated. It would make all the difference in the world. Do we have a video of this? Of course not. Why would we? He's a very widely popular person among Republicans, Fauci said. If he came out and said, go and get vaccinated, it's really important for your health, the healthier family, and the healthier country. It seems absolutely inevitable that the vast majority of people who are his close followers would listen to him. He's such a strongly popular person. I cannot imagine that if he comes out that they would, get, that they would not get vaccinated. It would be very helpful to the effort for that to happen. I mean, clearly, Operation... Is that Wallace still? No, that's Fauci. I mean, clearly, Operation Warp Speed started in the Trump administration. It was very successful in getting us the vaccines that we have right now. It seems like an intrinsic contradiction, the fact that you have a program that was started during his presidency, that he's not out telling people to get vaccinated, Fauci later added. I wish he would. He has such an incredible influence over people in the Republican Party. It would really be a game changer if he did. So, undermine President Trump, get elevated to celebrity status by the mainstream media, and now come out and beg President Trump. No, just tell people, get, get, get your vaccine, okay? Just tell people to do that, because I need everybody to have that. And once again, once the government's starting to tell you that you need to get the vaccine, they're a step away from making a law saying you have to have it. And if they're putting this much emphasis on getting it for a disease that kills 0.1% of the people that get it, I still don't feel comfortable with the idea that there isn't something else underneath there. But we will see. By the way, will you go out and get your vaccine if President Trump tells you to? Actually, I think Fauci's right. I think that a lot of people... That still have the Trump, and I know a bunch of people around here that still have the uh, the Trump flag outside of their property. I think a lot of people would jump on it if Trump came out and said, "You know what? I want everyone, I want all of my wonderful MAGA patriots to go out and get the vaccine." Okay, I want all of you to do that. Okay, I think a lot of them would jump on board. I think a lot of them would. I really do. All right, let's keep going. From the Associated Press, top Dems call on Cuomo to resign amid harassment allegations. I'm going to move this over here. Actually, we're going to do this one first because we'll look at that one afterwards. I'm completely organized, I promise. From the New York Post first, though, ex-Albany reporter Jessica Bakeman is the seventh woman to accuse Governor Cuomo of sexual harassment. From Leah Ustowich. Why the hell is there a black bear running down the... Well, it's Schenectady, I guess, so that actually makes a little bit of sense. A former Albany State House reporter is now the seventh woman to publicly accuse Governor Andrew Cuomo of sexual harassment, detailing on Friday instances of unwanted touching and humiliating comments she endured while covering his administration. Jessica Bakeman says she was sexually harassed by Cuomo several times since the start of her journalism career in 2012. We've heard the story before at this point. Just stop paying attention to the nursing home thing. Pay attention to all these women over here. Let's fight over whether or not we believe all women or not. And just forget about what happened with the nursing home thing. 
Just forget. Up. Up. Stop paying attention to it. Up. Stop paying attention. That's all this is at this point. And I, um, Sammy Summer over on Twitter tweeted out that uh, we, as a woman, she says that we shouldn't hashtag believe all women. And I pointed out right now, with everything that came out against Kavanaugh, against Biden, against Trump, and now against Cuomo, none of these so far that I've seen would actually stand up in front of a grand jury. You can go file a criminal prosecution, but I think in front of the grand jury, every single instance would fall apart while they're trying to accuse, uh, lay the charges against these people in front of a grand jury. So to me, they're completely pointless, but it is still fun to remind people that they said proudly and openly, and this is on both sides too, because there are so many people that are out there saying that we have to believe the accusers against Biden and Kavanaugh because, I'm sorry, not Biden and Kavanaugh, Biden and uh, Cuomo, because of the fact that it, it is legitimately political at that point. There are so many people who are coming out and saying that. I would not I would not try to drag any of these women in front of a grand jury because I know that it would fall apart completely on the stand. But that does not mean that it's not fun to remind people that they said, hashtag believe all women, when it was politically convenient. So... That's what we see from that. Now let's go on to the AP article that I was going to read earlier. Top Dems calling Cuomo to resign amid harassment allegations. From Marina Villanova and Stephen Peoples and Michael Balsamo. New York Governor Andy Cuomo confronted a stunning series of defections on Friday amid allegations of sexual harassment that left the high-profile Democrat fighting for his political survival angry and alone. By day's end, the three-term governor had lost the support of almost the entire 29-member New York congressional delegation and a majority of Democrats in the state legislature. None of the desertions hurt more than those of New York's two U.S. Senators, Majority Leader Charles U. Schumer and Senator Kirsten Gillibrand. Due to multiple credible sexual harassment and misconduct allegations, it is clear that Governor Cuomo has lost the confidence of his governing partners and the people of New York. The Democratic senators wrote in a joint statement, Governor Cuomo should resign. The escalating political crisis spawned an impeachment inquiry in an overwhelmingly Democratic state and threatens to cast a cloud over President Joe Biden's early days in office. Republicans have seized on the scandal to try to distract from Biden's success tackling the... Oh my God. Oh my God, they actually believe that. Biden's success in tackling the coronavirus pandemic and challenge his party's well-established advantage with female voters. Republicans pounce, folks. I need to go and pick up my glasses now. Republicans pounce. That is exactly what this all boils down to. It, it's not that... It's not the fact that Andy killed... Grandma in the nursing home to the tune of 15,000. It's not the fact that seven women come out and said, he touched me. It is Republicans taking advantage of the situation. That is what, that's what our political situation has become. All right. So that's what we have for that. All right, I've got a tweet here. Uh, Jen the Libertarian 
Can't legalize weed because kids will die. Because Pete Ricketts is coming out against the idea of legalizing pot. Let's so this is a, a dangerous... Shut up, I'm not done talking yet. So let's have a listen to what uh, Pete Ricketts had to say. So this is a dangerous drug that will impact our kids. If you legalize marijuana, you're going to kill your kids. That's what the data shows from around the country. And that's why it's dangerous to go around the established process we have to determine whether or not drugs are safe and effective, and why legalizing marijuana and going around the regulatory process to keep people safe is dangerous and going to harm our kids. So this is a dangerous... There you go. This is a dangerous situation. Legalizing marijuana. You might kill the kids. Let's see what the Hill has to say. Nebraska governor slams push for... No, I'm not going to allow ads on your shitty fucking website. Nebraska governor slams push for marijuana legalization. It'll kill your kids. From Lexi Lonis. Nebraska Governor Pete Ricketts spoke out at a press conference against legislation that would legalize medical marijuana, saying it will kill your kids. If you legalize marijuana, you're going to kill your kids, Ricketts said on Wednesday. A bill in the legislature's Judiciary Committee would legalize medical marijuana, but State Senator Anna Wishart said Wednesday that the Senate won't have the last say, the Associated Press reported. Wishart said those advocating for legalizing marijuana will push for a ballot measure if the state doesn't pass the legislation. It is dangerous to go around the established process. We have to determine whether or not drugs are safe and effective, and why legalizing marijuana and going around the regulatory process to keep people safe is dangerous and going to harm our kids, the governor said. A marijuana legalization measure was going to be on the ballot last year, but Nebraska's Supreme Court stripped it because of a rule barring multiple issues from being bunched into a single yes or no question. The measure included the subjects of the rights to use and grow marijuana, as well as how to regulate it. Advocates believe they have revised the measure, so the court will accept it on the ballot, according to the AP. So, Nebraska's trying to pass the, uh, the devil's lettuce and... I've always been on the same position of, really, you should be able to put into your body whatever you want to. Now, yes, if you want to put age limits on that, because we have age limits on everything else, including voting, military service, etc., then, okay, that's fine. Don't let the 12-year-olds get into the stuff. But a fully functioning adult stoner... Who wants to smoke a fucking blunt after work should be able to do so. It's a victimless crime. Nobody's hurt from that. And we can focus instead on the situations where people are, and I know it's a libertarian meme, but hurting people and taking their stuff. That's what we need to focus on. Not Harold the happy fucking hippie sitting in his basement with a bong. Let's keep going. Just the news. Which I don't know if they're green check verified or not. I didn't think to put this through news card this morning. Michigan lawmaker, time to use subpoena to learn Whitmer secrets about COVID nursing home deaths. From Natalia Middlestadt. It's time for us to go down the road of issuing a subpoena, said Michigan State Representative Steve Johnson, who is chair of the House Oversight Committee with regards to finding out the accurate numbers of COVID-19 nursing home deaths. 
Johnson told the John Solomon Reports podcast that Michigan Governor Gretchen Whitmer's administration was following the same guidelines as New York's Cuomo administration with regard to forcing COVID patients into nursing homes. So we started digging in, said Johnson, when we heard what happened in New York to say, hey, are we having the same problem here? And so we asked those questions to the Department of Health and Human Services, and they said, hey, we're counting the numbers just fine. You need to trust us. Well, I don't really exactly trust departments that much, Johnson continued. So we said, can you actually give us a better breakdown? You know, can you actually show us where the numbers are coming from? How many are actually in nursing homes versus those admitted to hospitals? That's where the Cuomo administration was hiding them. After getting those questions, they stopped talking to us, Johnson recounted. They won't answer those questions, so we had a hearing, and we invited the department to come and testify to answer a lot of the questions, and they refused to testify. We put out a public list of questions we had for them, and instead of answering that and sharing the data that they told us was, hey, we have the best data out there, we're doing everything right, but they didn't share it with us. That sounds very, very Trumpy, too. Okay, I have the best data the greatest data. Nobody has data like me, okay? Guess they learned from the best reality uh, TV star, and actually, they absolutely should. Every governing official should be held accountable for everything that they do, and they should have to answer for everything they do. That was the point of breaking away from the crown and making a free, boy, the founding fathers would be rolling over in their graves if they saw our country now, nation. Excuse me. That was the point of it. That was what we intended to do, was to hold our elected officials accountable and remind them that they work for us. But they don't seem to remember that they work for us at this point. All right, let's keep going. I got one here from The Blaze. And I know some of my, uh, some of my friends here that are watching now are from Illinois, so this is going to affect you guys directly. Otherwise, I'm just going to wait for this until tomorrow, but uh, I figure we got to throw this in for my people down in Baja, Wisconsin. Illinois City prepares first round of reparations to black residents, but activists say it's not enough. From Chris Enlow. A Chicago suburb is slated to become the first American city to offer reparations to their black residents. But now some activists are saying the city's plans do not go far enough to pay for past racial transgressions. Evanston, Illinois, a city about 12 miles north of downtown Chicago, approved... You know what? I'm familiar with Evanston, and I'm actually not even surprised at this point. Evanston, Illinois, a city about 12 miles north of downtown Chicago, approved a plan in 2019 to financially compensate its black residents to address the wealth and opportunity gaps they have experienced because of historical racism and discrimination, NBC News reported. The city plans to pay for reparation payments using tax revenue collected from sales of recreational marijuana. Evanston pledged to spend $10, uh, $10 million, rather, $10. $10 on reparations. No, $10 million on reparations over a 10-year period. City leaders unveil plans for restorative housing reparations, the first round of reparations payments, according to WLSTV. The program would distribute up to $25,000 for housing per eligible residence. However, the community activists who spoke to WSL say the reparation plans don't go nearly far enough. Hey guys, here's some free stuff. 
We want more. We want more. So, there we go. Good job, Evanston. Let's keep going. From the Associated Press. Floyd family agrees to $27 million settlement amidst ex-cops trial. From Steve Karnowski and Amy Forliti. The city of Minneapolis on Friday agreed to pay $27 million to settle a civil lawsuit from the Floyd family over the black man's death in police custody as jury selection continued in a former officer's murder trial. They're still not done with that, by the way. Council members met privately to discuss the settlement, then returned to public session for a unanimous vote in support of a massive payout. It easily surpassed the $20 million the city approved two years ago to the family of a white woman killed by a police officer. Floyd family attorney Ben Crump called it the largest pretrial settlement ever for a civil rights claim and thanked the city leaders for showing that you care about George Floyd. I wonder how much of that Ben Crump is going to get back. How much of that is going right back into Crump's pockets? It's going to be a long journey to justice. This is just one step on the journey to justice, Crump said. This makes a statement that George Floyd deserved better than what we witnessed on May 25th of 2020. You're right, he deserved much better, like sitting in his home and dying of fentanyl. Instead of doing so outside of a police car. That George Floyd's life mattered, and that by extension, Black Lives Matter. Even though my brother's not here, he's here with me in my heart, Philanese Floyd said. If I could get him back, I would give all of this back. Citation needed, please. L. Chris Stewart, another attorney who worked with the family, said the size of the settlement changes evaluations and civil rights for a black person when they die. So they're going to go pay his family a whole bunch of money for what we witnessed there. And I'm not going to go into what it was because we all saw it. We A lot of us have different conclusions about it, but... We've got the memorial here in the middle of the autonomous zone. And we will see what happens with the trial here. Let's talk about, uh, let's talk about Mommy Milky here for a second here. Uh, Anthony tweets out for everyone wondering why Mommy Milky is trending. It's based off this tweet. Sean M. Davis is claiming to be Photoshopped despite hundreds having seen it with their own eyes. Sean Davis, Mommy Milky. Sean Davis also, if you have a blue check mark and you're currently spreading obviously hoax screenshots, meant to deliberately and maliciously defame me, now would be a good time for you to lawyer up because I need a new truck and I would love nothing more than for you to be forced to pay for it. Okay, given the fact that he tweeted this out, and I know nothing about Sean Davis, but given the fact that he tweeted this last part out, tells me that he's probably guilty of this one too. Let's see what uh, M-E-A-W-W has to say about this. 
Did Sean Davis really tweet? Mommy Milky, Federalist co-founder, slams fake tweet and threatens legal action. From Srivats Lakshman. For a few hours, the phrase Mommy Milky was trending on Twitter. The source? A supposed tweet by journalist and co-founder of the Federalist, Sean Davis. First shared by Twitter user Jean-Michael Connard. The tweet went viral within as many as... Uh, Within minutes, rather, as many mocked Davis for a seemingly random tweet. Speaking to Mediaite, Davis called the tweet 100% fake. Davis also issued a not-so-veiled threat. He tweeted, if you have a blue checkmark and you're currently spreading the obviously hoax screenshots meant to deliberately and maliciously defame me, now would be a good time for you to lawyer up because I need a new truck and would love nothing more for you to be forced to pay for it. Wow, what an asshole. But did he actually tweet it? It turns out, not really. The tweet was created by Connard, who seems unfazed by Davis's threat. Nonetheless, the exchange was caught by the imagination of social media. Connard first tweeted a screenshot of the Mommy Milky tweet with the caption, Not fast enough. Late on March 12th, it didn't take long for the image to go viral, with many mocking the phrase. It appears Connard created the tweet, and the viral nature of it caught even him by surprise. It may have been a harmless joke, but Davis didn't appear to take it that way. Davis threatened legal action, but did not specifically state against who. In an interview with Mediaite, Davis repeated the threat, saying he should probably find himself a good defamatory, uh, defamation rather, attorney ASAP. Connor appeared to laugh off the threat, tweeting, This is your fault for encouraging me. It's not clear who he is addressing. It's not known who owns the account, which has over 20,000 followers. A quick scroll through the account shows many parody tweets and jokes, so it's likely that the fake Davis tweeted uh, tweet is just another one. Yeah, this is probably not going to go anywhere either. Trust me on this one here. That's not defamation. Take the L and fucking laugh it back off. But we'll see from there. A lot of people still take that as gospel, though. All right, let's keep going here. From NBC4, three officers injured, 10 arrested as Breonna Taylor protests turned violent in Los Angeles. From City News Service, Police Chief Michael Moore said Sunday that three officers were injured, none seriously, during clashes in Hollywood last night with demonstrators, marking the first anniversary of the death of Breonna Taylor, who was fatally shot by police in her Louisville, Kentucky home. Nine businesses were vandalized and smoke grenades, as well as other projectiles, were thrown at police, the chief said. Moore initially said 11 people were arrested, but the LAPD later clarified that 10 people in total were arrested related to the violence. No justification, excuse for this violence. Three officers injured, thankfully none serious. Smoke grenades and other projectiles thrown at our people were trying to facilitate a Breonna Taylor protest. Nine businesses vandalized, 11 arrests, more tweeted. The chief's tweet included a video that appeared to show a microwave oven being thrown at officers. I kind of want to see that. But I kind of don't know if I'll get dinged on YouTube because it's a YouTube video. It's a YouTube video of a uh, Instagram video. That's the one I'm looking for. I don't know if I can do this without getting dinged for it. So we're going to wait on that. And I'll, I'll go through it. I'll put it on the Clips channel. We might uh, watch this later on tonight if it uh, passes the Clips channel.
Of the 10 arrests, five people arrested on suspicion of assault with a deadly weapon on a police officer. The LAPD said in a statement, one person was arrested for battery on a police officer, while two were arrested for unlawful assembly, and two others were arrested for possession of prohibited items. Another video posted on social media shows two protesters pounding the hood of a Los Angeles Police Department vehicle as it stopped with its siren blaring near Sunset Boulevard and Ivar Avenue. The police car then slowly starts to drive off as the protesters climb on the hood, then abruptly accelerates as one of the protesters tumbles onto the roadway. So, in protest of the crime going on, now they're protesting more, apparently. And honestly, I don't... They were trying to, over the weekend, even some people on the libertarian side were trying to point out and go run with the tired narrative that's been disproven that we need to say her name because she died while she was in bed. And I read the investigative report, and she did not die while she was in her bed. She did die in the, uh, in the hallway after she was shot there, but that still doesn't excuse what was going on here. And what I've started to realize when I'm starting to read these things where they're still trying to push this, put the full blame on the police officers, is the fact that the died-in-her-bed thing was a ploy by mainstream media sources to make sure that the focus stayed on the police officers and not put pressure on lawmakers to relax some of these drug laws so that we don't see shit like this. If we have the boogeyman and the police officers, the politicians can continue to make money off the drug war, continue to put their political rivals in jail for the drug war, And just say, see, look, look, police. But they're protesting this right now. It's, it's mostly peaceful, though. Don't worry about that. It's completely mostly peaceful. See that? That's mostly peaceful. And I don't know how long that's going to last. It's, this whole genie in the bottle thing is going to be interesting to see because... Of course, the promise was, was after we elected Joe Biden, all the protests were going to stop. That's why I'm actually very curious to see what happens during the Chauvin trial, because I think Minneapolis is fucked at that point. I really do, because the genie's out of the bottle. They made an autonomous zone, and they can't hide this shit forever. All right, I've got one from NBC News proper. Man sues Hertz over receipt that cleared him of murder. From the AP, a man, a Michigan man rather, who spent nearly five years in custody is suing a car rental company for failing to produce in a timely manner a receipt that would have proved his innocence long before he was convicted of a 2011 murder. The evidence from Hertz was finally obtained in 2018, leading to Herbert Alfred's exoneration in Ingham County Court last year. Alfred filed a lawsuit against Hertz on Tuesday. Although the case will be slowed by the company's bankruptcy reorganization, he is seeking financial compensation, which he well should get. There's no question that Alfred would have avoided going to prison had they produced this documentation, attorney Jamie White told WLNS-TV. Hertz said it's deeply saddened about what happened to Alfred. 
While we were unable to find the historic rental re uh, record for 2011, when it was requested in 2015, we continued our good faith efforts to locate it. A spokeswoman, Laura Luster, said on Wednesday, with advances in data search in the years following, we were able to locate the rental record in 2018 and probably uh, provided it. Alford was convicted of second-degree murder in 2016 in the shooting death of Michael Adams. The Hertz receipt showed Alford was renting a car in the Lansing area airport around the time that Adams was shot. White said he was killed in a Lansing neighborhood 20 minutes away from the airport. The conviction was thrown out and charges were finally dropped in 2020 after Alford had served nearly five years in prison and jail. So, and with this, now I've not, I've actually not read the court document for this, so I don't know what happened, what was going on with that and how that all played out how the murder played out or anything else that went along with this i don't know how any of that happened but if it's actually true then hertz should be on the hook for this they absolutely should be on the hook for this if they were unable under subpoena to bring forth a records request that would have exonerated a murder this guy lost five years of his life five years of wages five years of life five years with his family then yes, he absolutely should have five years of financial compensation coming back to him. And I don't know what he did before this either. Like, I don't know what his job was or anything else like that, but if he was renting from Hertz at the airport, he's at least fairly well off to some extent. Hertz is kind of expensive from what I've seen. I don't, I've not rented a lot of cars in my life, but Hertz is a little bit on the expensive side from what I've seen. So the dude's making at least a decent living. And for five years, no living, sitting in prison? Yeah, absolutely, they should be on the hook for that. All right, I got just a couple more here, then we'll do something that restores my faith in humanity and head on out of here. Uh, this is a little bit of foreign news from France 24, Ethiopia. Video of Tigray Massacre lifts lid on war without photos. The Tigray region located in the far north of Ethiopia, has been engulfed in a bloody struggle between the central government and the regional government, who want more representation and political power for the Tigray minority within the government. Last November, this conflict escalated into an outright war after highly anticipated elections were delayed. This led to a humanitarian catastrophe. Shelling in residential areas saw large numbers of people being displaced. The chaos has led to famine. There was also a ratcheting up of tensions when thousands of Eritrean soldiers joined the side of Ethiopian central government against the Tigray regional government. This is the result of a complex history. Eritrea and Ethiopia were at war for 30 years. During this time of war, Ethiopia was led by the government, where the Tigrayan minority and the Tigray People's Liberation Front had enormous amount of political power. However, they lost power in 2018 as Abiy Ahmed was appointed prime minister. In early February, a video of 4 minutes 4 seconds was broadcast on social media, initially posted as a series of 1 minute excerpts. Those who shared the shocking footage say it was proof that Ethiopian soldiers had massacred citizens in Debre Abay, a district in central Tigray. News site Tigat, which is run by a group of Tigrayan activists living abroad, reported on January 12th that a massacre had taken place in this location. 
In early February, the site shared excerpts from the video. Following in the footsteps of Twitter users who had started to investigate the origins of the video, British Daily The Telegraph published an article about it on February 19th. So, and we're used to seeing the war-torn region known as Ethiopia. We're very used to seeing that. It's, we, that's, Ethiopia has been at war for a long time. Especially, all of Eastern Africa seems to constantly be in little battles, little wars, little this, that, and the next thing. Less so in Central Africa, less so in, well, after the end of apartheid, less so in the South Africa region, less so in the Sahara region, but definitely that Eastern coast seems to always be embroiled in some sort of war humanitarian crisis. But the reason I wanted to throw this in is because one of the trends that was going on over the weekend that I thought was important to talk about was the fact that uh, do something Biden was trending because Democrats want Biden to take us into this region and try to help out the Tigray region against Ethiopia. They want us to be involved in this conflict. They don't really want, I don't personally myself, don't really want to have an involvement in another foreign theater, but it is what it is. And this, these people who are completely against war of any type just 15 short years ago are now all in to get ready to go and show off our stuff over in Ethiopia. So something to watch here, something to see if this goes out and boils over into something else, and we will see what happens there. I've got one from the Associated Press. Vatican excludes gay union blessing as God can't bless sin. From Nicole Winfield. The Vatican decreed Monday that the Catholic Church cannot bless same-sex union since God cannot bless sin. The Vatican's Orthodoxy Office, the Congre uh, Congregation for the Doctrine of Faith, issued a formal response on Monday to a question about whether Catholic clergy can bless gay unions. The answer, contained in a two-page explanation published in seven languages and approved by Pope Francis, was negative. The decree distinguished between churches welcoming and blessing of gay people, which it upheld, not their union, since any sacramental recognition would be confused with marriage. The Vatican holds that gays must be treated with dignity and respect, but that gay sex is intrinsically disordered. Catholic teachings told that marriage, a lifelong union between a man and a woman, is part of God's plan and is intended for the sake of creating new life. Which, in all reality, it really is. It's the same reason that the government gives you tax breaks for going out and getting married and having a bunch of kids because you're creating the next generation of workers for the government, and they want to incentivize you to do so as such. And furthermore, like, I don't give a damn how you fuck. I never have, and I never will. What you do in the privacy of your own home is your own business. And if you want a civil contract, so that you can protect your partner in case something happens, that's between you and your local government. Most of the most of the laws involving that will happen at the local level anyway. Most of the torts, most of the contracts, that all happen at a municipal level and sometimes at a state level. So that's between you and your state if you want to. And as far as who you fuck and how you fuck, that's between you and God, dude. That is absolutely between you and God. So 
you square yourself with a big guy. But don't ask the religious institutions to speak on the behalf of God and bless your union. You just talk to him when you get to heaven and he decides whether or not you come in. But that's what we see from that. All right, and the last one here, before we get into something that restores my faith in humanity, comes to us from PJ Media. David Hogg's Pillow Company seems to have already failed from Matt Margolis. PJ Media, by the way, is not Green Shack Verified, but since we talked about this when it was first happening last month, I figure it was useful to talk about this now. Remember when anti-gun activist David Hogg woke up one day and decided to start a pillow company to keep up with Mike Lindell's popular MyPillow because Lindell supporters, I'm sorry, because Lindell rather supports Trump. And he tweets out, William Legate and I are going to prove that progressives can make a better pillow, run a better business, and help make the world a better place while doing it. That was on February 4th. Or did you forget all about it? If so, I'm sure you're not alone. Watching Hogg try to launch his pillow company called Good Pillow was like being forced to watch a train wreck as his public pleas for ideas and suggestions felt more like desperate cries for help than legitimate crowdsourcing. Yet the patheticness of it all didn't matter to the media as PG, uh, PJM's Megan Fox reported last month. Hogg's pillow company, despite the being in the embryonic stage of development, they didn't even have a logo yet, was getting free publicity from the Washington Post. In fact, Hogg's partner made a public appeal for a top-tier graphic designer to design the company's logo for a mere $200 and in less than two hours for WAPO's forthcoming feature story, which was published on February 9th. The day after WAPO's feature story came a Newsweek article that gloated over the fact that Hogg's Pillow Company already has more Twitter followers than MyPillow ever did and reported that potential buyers should be able to purchase the items in around a month. Well, so much for that. Good Pillow's website, featuring their $200 two-hour logo, doesn't appear to have been changed in a long time. The Good Pillow's Twitter account hasn't posted a tweet in over a month. Its last tweet, posted February 10th, reported the company is trying to finalize the list of charity partners we'll be launching with and asked followers to list any organizations they should support. Since then, silence. But there's more to the sad story. Newsweek's gloating article made the mistake of noting a search of the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office database does not reveal any new company being registered under that name, Good Pillow, or a variant. Well, as PJ Gladnick at Newsbusters noted, anybody reading that article would be alerted to the fact that Hogg and Partner had not even bothered to register the name of the company, therefore somebody who wanted to could go ahead and register that name, thus depriving Hogg of its use unless he paid dearly for it. Well, it appears that somebody did. A subsequent search of the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office database reveals that on February 11th, a day after the heads-up provided by Newsweek, GoodPillow was indeed registered by Mr. Roger, uh, Robert Rather Holland of North Carolina. Congratulations, Bob. You might be the only person who ends up making money from GoodPillow. So, it's over. And Hogg also hasn't tweeted apparently since then either. He's been silent since February 10th. So, yeah. He got his ass handed to him. Like we knew that he would. He paid $200 for a graphic that he can't use. We still see no pillows and life went on. Alright. 
And that is going to be it for the day. And the last thing we do on a Monday is something that restores my faith in humanity, which I think we all need at some point here, because as we keep seeing more stupid things like David Hogg trying to make his pillow company, we do look at the fact that, uh, yeah, there's a lot of lost faith in humanity. Humanity is spiraling out of control at this point. And one of the things that restores my faith in humanity, so you guys all know, because I talk about it all the fucking time, that I had gone on to a sort of modified keto diet. Mostly doing a slow-carb thing rather than a full low-carb thing because when I went full low-carb, my metabolism dropped so far that I couldn't do anything anymore off of that. But I started to go back into it. I started to eat uh, carbs here and there, have a pizza every once in a while. And I was starting to get more and more as I went along. And I'd started drinking again too. Which, if you're doing low-carb, lay off the liquor because it will hit you in the head like a sock filled with butter. Trust me on that. I found that out the hard way. You have like zero tolerance if your body has no idea how to process it. I'm sorry. Yeah, if your body has no idea how to handle processed sugar, that alcohol is going to hit you like a brick. But I went out on Saturday night, and I spent a little bit of money being out with uh, other people in the town. And I just I drank about $60 worth of whiskey. And I came home, and I laid in bed until like 11 o'clock the next morning. I was awake, but I just had no ambition, nothing, no desire to move or anything. And that's, that's something I've been noticing for a while as I've been drinking. I'm starting to realize and recognize some of the problems that I had in my 20s when I was drinking excessively. And I haven't been drinking excessively now, but I just I look around, and the apartment's a mess. I've got a backlog of paperwork to do for the Rednet show. I've got a backlog of work to do for... The website to try and get that done and organized and ready to go. I haven't been to my parents' house in weeks. And I just look around and realize that, you know, I'm sitting here 37 years old just about trying to find a wife and realizing that, dude, if I was a chick, I wouldn't want to marry me. So the ability to recognize early the fact that I was having problems gives me the chance to correct the problems that I was having here. And that does restore my faith in humanity because deep down, if we really look inside of ourselves, we can find the problems. We can correct them in a timely manner rather than waiting until the very bitter last minute to do so. And I hope that if you guys do have a demon that's haunting you, that you can find a way to correct it as well. I hope this story inspired you. If Even if you have one that you don't quite recognize, but you know is kind of there, just that little nagging feeling off your shoulder, I hope that this story is able to help you realize that it's there and do some correction in your life as well. I hope that uh, works well for you. And I'm looking forward to improving some of my life as well. Hey, who knows? Maybe we'll see that uh, wedding coming up in the near future too. But that's probably an ambitious idea. We'll see what happens off of it. I'm going to get off here, finish up my paperwork for the Red Net show, and go and clean the apartment because, you know, as Peterson says, how can you have a good life if you're in chaos? Clean your damn room. And that's going to be it. So we'll head on out of here. We'll be back here later on tonight for the Red Net show, including a couple announcements that will be coming up off the top here. Looking forward to that as well. Hope to see you there. Until then, I'm Jay Edgar, and this is Contemporary. <laughs>